Welcome to the Cloud Pod, where the forecast is always cloudy. We talk weekly about all things AWS, GCP, and Azure. We are your hosts, Justin, Jonathan, Ryan, and Peter. Episode 85, recorded on September 2nd, 2020. The Cloud Pod plays buzzword bingo on machine learning. Hey, good evening, Ryan and Jonathan. Hey, Justin, how's it going? Good, good. You know, uh, we had homework to do, and you know, Peter bailed out before the show because he hadn't done his homework, I think. So. It's a long way to go to get out of doing the research. But, yeah, you know, I, mean, I, I applaud some, him, actually. Something about doing a flight or something, and I was just like, okay, sure. You know, you didn't, didn't plan that one ahead, apparently. So. I'm just jealous I didn't think of it. Uh, yeah, I know. But, you know, I think the, I think the homework was good. So uh, as we talked about last week, uh, we would go do homework to go read the Dear Google Cloud, uh, Your Deprecation Policy is Killing You by Steve Yegg. Uh, this is a very long blog post, so I won't try to summarize all of it as I normally do for our articles. But I'll talk about it kind of a high level, and then we'll kind of dive into some of this here. But uh, first up, uh, Steve Yegg, uh, he was an engineer at Google in the early days. Uh, he was working there on software and leveraging Google's internal infrastructure for years. Uh, and he you know, comments in the thing that their infrastructure is amazing. Uh, he talked about uh, at one point that he had been using Bigtable as part of his onboarding program uh, and that you know they had this you know, basically it was out of date. And so they basically contacted him. The dev team actually contacted him and said, hey, you're using an old version of uh, our Bigtable solution and that, uh, you know, you need to move to a new version of it. And, you know, he looks at it and it hadn't been used for two years, zero traffic, and he still got a note, personalized note from a person at Google. Uh, and then he go, basically has left Google now and he's on to his own startup uh, and doing his own thing. And he's, he starts out with uh, basically 13 years later, he gets similar letters uh, as he did for that Bigtable letter from GCP about... Uh, sunsetting important services uh, you're using in August and that you'll need to rewrite your application or it will break on a certain date, uh, which he basically summarized down as F you, F you, F you, broken thing, F you, F you. Uh, and so that's kind of the gist of the article. And he goes on to talk about a whole bunch of other stuff, which we'll get into here as we talk about it. But that's kind of the gist of it. And he basically takes, makes a case of why Google's deprecation policy is basically killing uh, user adoption. Uh, and I think it was really interesting. And I think you guys got some interest out of it as well. So uh, what do you guys uh, want, where do you want to start? Do you want to talk about uh, his comparison of other platforms? Do you want to talk about the pretense of this? Where do you want to start? I think you got to remember that it's not just typical cloud services that we're talking about in the context of the things that Google kills. I mean, think about Hangouts that they're going to kill, that you've got uh, Google+. Plus. People invested a lot of time in social media and building their networks out only to have those things killed. We have Google Hire where people have people have use those services to, to track applicants to, to jobs and all that information is going to be, going to be gone. It's it's um, yeah. It's not just cloud services. It's it's even it's even more. It's even deeper than that. I'm still bitter about Google Reader. Mm -hmm. <laughs> A lot of people are. <laughs> yeah. Uh, Google Wave. I miss Google Wave. <laughs> oh yeah, Google Wave up there too. <laughs> yeah. You know, so I, I, I think it's. Oh, sorry, go ahead, Ryan. So like uh, for me, the it was really so I I am prone to fall victim to the same like well why don't you just update. Why you know, like, why can't you just make that change if it's, you know, an API deprecation or if it's just a change? Like, I also sort of fall into that same Google trap. And so what I got out of this article was, was really just like a self-reflection a little bit that, you know, I got to be a little bit more conscientious of my users um, and not because I, you know, his points about, you know, the things that are made to last and how, you know, the, the you know, the base OS levels and Emacs and the examples that he goes into for how to build a robust, long-lived platform is really powerful, and it's really, you know, changed my mind in a lot of ways and how I approach building software and, and backwards compatibility. So this is, um, it's a really great read. I recommend that everyone read it. Um, 
but yeah, I mean, it's it's nice to you know to preach the the perfect world of everyone can make updates and maintain their code and zero tech debt and everything, but it's just not the reality. And Google is not playing to that reality. But think about yeah. the digital devices you own. What's the oldest digital device you own? Uh, probably system. my computer that's on my desk at home that I don't use very often. <laughs> and, that, and that can be updated fairly easily. It's not like it's a piece, piece mm -hmm. of uh, standalone hardware which, which, which will break if a service that it depends on were to go away. I mean, you can update a computer. Yeah, I mean, my TV, I mean, I have a TV that's been pretty, you know, it's, I've had that for 10 years almost. Yeah. Um, you know, there's, like, there's things like that that I just don't upgrade as often, but they're not that they're not upgradable. Just I, there's nothing compelling to me to make me upgrade. And I think that's the interesting part of his, you know, some of his argument he's talking about when it comes to like new Emacs, which is not wasn't the greatest selling point to me. <laughs> not, a, not a huge Emacs fan. Uh, but you know, he he talked about you know how important backwards compatibility is to keeping that system alive and relevant for decades. And so the fact that. You know, even though I'm still running a TV that's 10 years old, it still supports 1080p. It still it doesn't support 4K, but all of my content gets downgraded to me. Uh, my cable box supports 1080p. It's very standardized. You know, eventually I get a 4K TV and, or an 8K TV. Might be my next upgrade at this point. Um, you know, I, but that I still have the ability that I can watch content, and I can still watch content from 30 years ago from television. You know, it's in terrible format, and I can't stand looking at it, but I can still watch it if I want to. So I think. You know the backwards compatibility argument he makes is super valuable and super important. Uh, and, you know, and the the other one he talks about is you know he kind of talks about this this pretense that Am uh, Google doesn't understand platforms, uh, which I think was actually the most interesting part of the article to me because if you don't you know if you think about platforms that they have, what platforms are they really using? There's Google Apps, which is really a platform ish, and there's Android. And then he you know he actually points out Android doesn't count because they bought it. <laughs> and they've done a really good job keeping Android separate from the rest of the Google ecosystem. But if you think about these services as products, replacing a product like my TV is super simple. It's it's a transactional system that I'm going to replace it. I'm going to do that. And so if you treat all these things like a transactional system or something as a product, then the backwards backwards need is not as important and the deprecation is just means you know, hey, it's no longer valid. It's it's old. You should buy the new one. You should buy the new Nest Home Theater or Home Thermostat. You should buy the next Google Mini Box round obsolete thing. You know, whatever it's going to be. But when you're building a platform that you want other people to build on, the need for that thing to be able to support content long term and the ability to support upgrades and not be a nuisance to your customer is really important. Yeah, think about those um, security cameras. They were writing images to S3. If S3 made a change, a breaking change to the API, all those all those cameras, which may well still be in use because they're designed to last 10 years, all of a sudden they don't work anymore. But at the same time, I, I, I kind of agree somewhat with planned obsolescence. I think people, people can't have it both ways. I mean, you want you want the march of technology to make things better. Are we still using floppy disks or zip disks? Are we still you know saving saving data on uh, on tape? No, not so much. But well, are I, we I doing think this that is the... They're obsolete now, or are we doing that because there are better there are better options? And so, like, I think that's the big difference. If I could probably go find my old jazz drive, which I have, oh, you do? Box. I have, I have, uh, I have discs. Yeah. I need to visit. And I bet you, with enough adapters, <laughs> I could go read data off that thing. You know, like the, you know, like that's sort of. But the planned obsolescence means that that just wouldn't work. Like no matter what, so to use the TV metaphor, on a certain date, it would stop being able to display a picture. Is is more. And I just don't know if I can I can go I can believe in that as much as I used to. Well, and I think this is this is the argument I make. To, you know, because we, we run internal services all the time, we run platforms. And my my point is, if we're going to load a new version of it, there has to be something that's 
what's the juice? You know, if I squeeze, if I take this this thing and I squeeze it, what am I getting out of it? What's the value prop to my end user to make them want to take the change? And if it that is compelling enough, and I think the answer with the jazz drive to CD-ROM and then to DVD-ROM is it's it's easier, it's faster. They're less prone to breaking. They had a value prop that made them superior to the technology that existed at the point in time. Um, and I think in the case of these areas where he's talking about being deprecated, these are not areas where they're making massive improvements. It's just, oh, we decided we don't want to use that API anymore. We're going to give you a different one, and now we're going to force you to use the new one versus giving you the option of both. And I think that's where his argument really kind of comes into play. As he's saying, you know, if I get this every month, <laughs> you know, there's only going to be a few times where you can do that to me where I'm going to start saying, okay, this is ridiculous. I'm not getting any value for making this change. And he talks about it when he was at Google, that they had tools to help you do this. So they actually right. gave you the tools to say, hey, you're relying on this old deprecated API. We're going to automatically update you to the new version. Google doesn't make those tools available to their GCP customers today. Uh, and maybe that's part of the message here is they need to think about how do they deprecate these things in a better way to make it easier for enterprises to adopt. But even then, we laugh at Amazon doing, you know, doing SFTP support and all the dumbness around FTP and FTPS support. And we're like, you know, just rewrite your application. And the reality is some of these applications are so old. And when you're talking about the cloud and you're trying to go after the enterprise customer, they have old stuff that's not going to be fixed. They don't have the source code for. They just don't have a way. And if, you, if your pretense is you're never going to get out of your private cloud, then that's fine. But if you want them to move their workload, you have to meet them where they're at. I mean, you, you, you realize how old some of the stuff that's still out there is when, you know, there's a shortage of Cobalt, you know, like Cobalt developers earlier this year. You're just like, oh, okay, what this is much bigger problem than I thought. So I agree, yeah. I think that's why you shouldn't call APIs directly, why you should always have some kind of abstraction, which you can swap out easily as the API, as, as the service changes, you, you swap out the, the middleman. But the API is supposed to be that layer, right? Like that's supposed to be the that exchange, and so you can call this API. And so the the, the biggest difference he's arguing for is don't remove the API, add a new one. People will switch over, and just don't don't make any improvements to the existing one. You know, you you label it as obsolete. You don't make any. You don't invest in it any longer. But it's still there. It'll still do the. You know, well, the, and the, and the, the point that, you know, we always make fun of Simple DB. It's an Amazon service that's existed since almost the beginning of the cloud. They don't encourage you to use it. They don't recommend you use it. But, you know, if you're using it, you can still use it. It hasn't been deprecated. Now, there, Amazon has deprecated some things, but they're typically very much in a security reason, right? Like TLS certificates or, you know, bad authorization methods that, you know, are been you know, vulnerable to attack or they need to fix those. Literally, typically, they're deprecating something and they're forcing that deprecation. I think the same thing happens in Java. You know, Java warns you about stuff that's been deprecated all the time, uh, but ultimately, unless it's a security-related thing, they're not going to turn it off other than just warn you for, and that hasn't, you know, that continues to happen for a long time. Yeah, but security is a good point. Now, it's e it's easy to say, oh, just don't do any more work on it, don't invest any more time in it, but you have to. You can't just let things completely rot away because I'm sure there are other things that you depend on, which are changing with time, and there's security vulnerabilities which will be found with time, and you'll have to keep going back. I mean, at what point do you say it's not worth my time or money to continue investing in? in maintaining this this old thing i think you versus, know versus versus the you know the cost to your customers i guess and yeah. google, google's made their, their point clear and i don't necessarily agree with it but i kind of it comes down to money for sure yeah i mean maybe there's a balance i don't i you know i don't have i don't think there's a one one size fits all answer i do think that you can decrease the investment and you know you can you deprecate things when there is a security vulner, you know, vulnerability discovered. You can use that to take action. You you still run it through your security program, so still run it through that. But you know, you make a minimal investment to keep that backwards compatible. I think that has a lot of worth. Yeah. 
I think the, the interesting part you talked about too, um, which was one of the most most compelling, is that you know you're right. You could write a middle layer, Jonathan. You could write. You know, APIs are supposed to be kind of the middle layer. We talk about that a lot in cloud agnostic. You know, I'm not going to write to the API specifically. I'm going to write to a middle layer that I now have to maintain and take care of as well. So someone's going to be deprecated somewhere. But the argument he makes around Python 2 to Python 3 um, in this article around, you know, the benefits of Python 3 didn't didn't justify the means to get there. <laughs> and so, you know, it's taken years to get off of Python 2. Customers are still off Python 2. And if you're taking the lift to get from Python 2 to Python 3, why not just go to Go or Golang? Mm-hmm. Um, and I think that's an interesting argument too, because the more that Google does this deprecation, the less and less likely they are to write to the APIs natively, like you know, and write that middle layer that Jonathan wants. And then it becomes you you don't have cloud lock in anymore. You now have the ability to just move between clouds all the time, and no big deal. Um, so it, it is also a risk to their business in some ways, I would think. So it, his argument makes a lot of sense, not only from you know, be good to your enterprises who are typically running enterprise software, but also you know, get. That lock-in isn't bad necessarily for Google's long-term success if they want to be a serious player in cloud. And number two, if you do force the platform change, you're likely going to force them off to a different platform that isn't you, and that's a big risk. The Python Go example like hit home because I didn't even realize I was doing it until I read this article. But like a lot of stuff that exactly we had to we're porting it off of Python or just investing not in Python three but in Go exactly. You know, it's got performance improvements. It's it's much more documented than when we created these things. It's you know, it's growing in popularity, and so yeah, why not? There's no real reason to, but they they made me move. They made me do a thing, so now I'm moving. Yeah, and you looked at the market and you said, "Here's what else is out there." Yeah, uh, and this is a superior option mm-hmm. that people seem to like, and I can find developers who can do it. And you know, I developers who I want to go hire for Python still are predominantly Python two developers, and not Python three developers, unless they're in machine learning, which is a whole different conversation. Um, we'll get to that later, but you know, I, I, <laughs> <laughs> but you know, I, I do think it's really interesting, and it, it's just a lot of good questions and, and things to think about, and you know, and you think about again going back to your cloud provider and what do you want to do uh, as you invest in a cloud provider? It makes me question why I would use Google. You know, if I had to do these things, if I'm natively integrating, then that's that's an expensive layer I have to now invest in that I don't necessarily want to. I'm going, to, I'm going to pick on you for the Python example, though. So what do you think would have, would have helped that situation for Python? Because I think forced obsolescence would have, would have made people early, much earlier move to Python 3. Uh, would it, though? I mean, you're, you're talking about changing before it gains enough traction in the market to, to really have enough impact with forced obsolescence, obsolescence. And I don't know if that's really the right tack because, you know, the, the, the caution story here is that, you know, maybe you never gain that market share. Um, it's, but we're, we're ta- talking, uh, I, I think what we're talking about is, is not a drastic change from what they did with Python two to Python three. They could have made things a little bit more backward compatible to where the same code would work. And you're still out offering improvements and adding more things as you move into three without the full deprecation. This just isn't going to work anymore. We're going to stop maintaining. Well, they, they sort of entirely. did that with you know, importing module future, <laughs> you know, where I got Python 3 capabilities in Python 2. But, you know, could I have gotten to Python 3 in a much slower, you know, here's the new API next to the old API in Python 2. You know, you can take advantage of which one you want to make take advantage of. There's ways they could have done that. I think it would have made it a, sing- a more smooth transition and it wouldn't have been so disruptive. Where the Python 2 to Python 3 is seen as a very disruptive interruption because of the way they changed uh, large portions of the application. Ah, I think that's exaggerated. I think it's only exaggerated because there's so much training material out there for Python 2.7 that it, it just frustrated people trying to run all those things 
and they failed. But it also speaks to the mentality, right? Like he, he, in the article, he talks about you know, um, you know, the the maintainer of Python just saying, you know, I named it Python three thousand because that's when people are going to, you know, that's the year people are going to adopt it. It's it's a it's a very callous approach to your users, you know, like, you know, like, I don't know if I support that. And I, I think that shows in the way it's deprecated. And I think that's what I, I tuned on myself because that's how I could be to my users. <laughs> <laughs> There's got to be some kind of fine line or at least some kind of compromise between the movement of technology and supporting old versions. Well, I, I, I think that's why we have API versioning. I think that's why we have that concept. I think you see Amazon doing a decent job of it today. I think you see Azure doing a decent job of it today, uh, where they're providing, you know, and they'll tell you it's going to, you know, the other side of this is it's one thing to tell me you're going to deprecate it in six months versus you're going to deprecate it in three years. And right. Google very often chooses the six-month window, like, oh, you have six months to make this conver conversion or you're out of luck. Where Amazon, when they do do those things, they say, hey, we are going to deprecate it eventually. We highly encourage you to not use this. But I found something similar. Do you want to know how long should six-month-olds stay? Nope. Google, go away. <laughs> Hasn't uh, gone away by itself yet, apparently. <laughs> yeah, think, yeah, he wants to join yeah. the podcast. Yeah. Um, but anyways, I, I think that's the difference is where you get this type of input onto the process of, you know, is it six months deprecation or is it two years? And then in that two-year window, you make the other side look more attractive and like, ooh, the grass is greener on that side of the fence. I want to get there because I got these other amazing new features you didn't have available to me before. I mean, just the, the when Amazon tried to, to deprecate the, what it was, the V3 of S3 API, like the, mm -hmm. the amount of uproar, the immediate walk back, right? They were not willing to suffer through that and, and impose that on all of their users. And so they walked it back, and they, I think they extended the deadline by two years. I think that was their attempt at the Google, the Google Play, and I don't think it played out very well for them at all. Well, I mean, when you're, you know, this is part of the reason why HashiCorp doesn't want to make their Terraform and all these products 1.0 because they they feel it gives them the right to break things <laughs> because they haven't locked down the API spec. They haven't locked down these things. And, yeah. you know, having just done a Terraform upgrade to 0 0.13 this last week, I'm like, ugh, this is painful. You just did this to me in 0 0.12, and now you're doing yeah. it to me again in 0 0.13. Why? Why am I doing this? And you've changed, like, fundamental things about how you do uh, references that I'm like, I don't understand why you made this change and why... I'm being forced down this path. Um, but I think, I think there's always risk in that in software. And I think, you know, it's maybe one of the reasons why I'll take a harder look at CDK now instead of Terraform and say, maybe I want to go that direction instead because I'm tired of this breaking because the CDK is coming from AWS. So that's a possibility that I make a change because I'm, they've now proven to me twice they're going to break me in ways that I don't like. Well, again, if you haven't read this article, uh, it is linked in the show notes. I highly recommend checking this one out. Um, I think it's a really good article and, and really good conversation about how you think about services inside your organizations as well. It's not just you know your GCP decision versus Azure or AWS, but also how you think about internal services versus products. And I think it's worth spending you know about 20 minutes to read through this article and really get a lot of the details. Uh, we can't do justice to what Steve had to say, but um, I agree with almost every one of his points in this one. Except Emacs. Can't, can't abide by the Emacs. <laughs> I can't abide by that either. Yeah. Well, he also he also said you know people went to Golang or Ruby. I I chuckled when I saw Ruby. Oh wow. I know they didn't. <laughs> no one. I think that ship sailed. So. <laughs> well, moving on to our main show topics, off to AWS. Uh, so Amazon has uh, you know at reInvent announced their first local zone in Los Angeles, causing massive confusion, uh, as they already had like a localized region concept which they forgot about. 
Uh, and this, you know, even when they announced this, they said they will be adding a second local zone to Los Angeles. And due to cu popular customer demand, and they promised it, uh, they have now launched uh, the second LA zone. Uh, this is now known as US West 2 LAX 1A, uh, or the LAX domain, as I'm going to call them, because it's nice. <laughs> LAX 1A and LAX 1B. Yeah. Uh, these are available for you if you are in the, you know, if you have a need in Los Angeles, you have a data center there, you have some other need, uh, you can take advantage of this for EC2, EBS, FSX, uh, ELB, RDS, VPCs, uh, all available to you in the LAX region. Uh, as well as if you're using Direct Connect uh, via the Direct Connect gateway, you can probably get sub 1.5 milliseconds of latency between your LA-based data center and an AWS local zone. Uh, you know, it sort of makes me wonder, though, if they just missed the opportunity to build another region there in LA which might have been a better choice. Yeah, it would change, you know, it'd remove a lot of the specialness of the local zones as far as that you ways that you have to create in your code to sort of look up these things. And I always, I wonder if this is like real estate is just that expensive or is there like a single industry or a single customer that they're sort of catering to? Like, you know, maybe it's the Hollywood industry requires, you know, some zero low latency, something or other that they're allowing by building these things. Mm. I wonder Seems if it's like a weird choice. Yeah, I'm, I'm, I can't imagine that, that Hollywood moving terabytes of data around for movies would be low latency would be the most important thing. But what about stuff like uh, IoT and self-driving cars? I, I don't think there's use cases. Um, you know, and there's also lots of uh, scientific research that happens in the Los Angeles area with USC and some of the other things down there. So there's definitely a value to it. But you know, they only have three U.S. zones uh, or regions. Sorry, three U.S. regions. Um, you know. You look at Google, you look at Asia, they're adding a lot of U.S. regions, and I don't know why, you know, Oregon's kind of far from L.A., so I, I wouldn't have minded an L.A. region. I mean, I, I, mean, I guess that's why they have uh, West 1 in Santa Clara or San Jose or wherever it is, but you know, that region's always been a redheaded stepchild. Sure. Yeah, and it what they're calling U.S. West 2 is so huge at this point. Like, it's, you know, like, it's just ginormous. It's, it's hardly, it's, it is a region in itself, you know, so it, it's an interesting choice there. Um, well, it's sort of like the same they're doing with the uh, the five G zones, right? They're attached to these big master zones too, uh, either in Virginia right now or eventually in Oregon. So it's so, sort of the same idea where they kind of are doing all these sub you know, sub zones or sub components off of these major zones uh, or regions. And then you also have if you're doing um, outposts, those become attached to one of these regions as well. And so you, you know, they've already built the infrastructure to do it. I see why they're making the play, but it, it doesn't. There's still value in having full blown regions. Well, if uh, you've ever had the need to attach a Linux box to Active Directory, uh, you know this is a scripting nightmare, <laughs> which involves secrets and all kinds of fun things, and Amazon is making that much simpler for you now with a new ability to automatically join a Linux EC2 instance to an AWS directory service for MS Active Directory seamlessly. Uh, this leverages the Secrets Manager, IAM, and SSM agent uh, to handle the joining of the process, and it's simple as attaching a specific uh, joining domain role to the account, and an SSM document will handle all of the magic of adding them to the domain. Now, of course, they don't support removing them from the domain automatically. You still would need to use a lifecycle hook for that, which no one does, uh, but there you go. But you can. Yeah. No, I, <laughs> I like that they, when they make things easy. I wish that they would make things easy with full consideration of the life life cycle. It's just, it, it shows to me that people are joining these things to domains do not have the same expectations of, you know, maintaining a herd of these things versus a pet of the thing. So it's, it's a shame they missed that, but I also think that, you know, making half of this easy is a good, good advantage. 
Well, and, you know, you've been given feedback and they'll add that next. <laughs> so they'll that's add true. some capabilities. Mm -hmm. And, you know, I think that's, you know, because this is their version of MS Active Directory, they could do a lot more automation in AD than they offer today. So there's there's things they could be doing to make that service more more robust and, you know, tie directly into Amazon and say, oh, hey, that node has been terminated. I don't need to have that anymore. And you sure. have some lifecycle tied to that. Um, so hopefully that'll be something they will do sometime in the future. Agreed. I don't know if it goes in your model of, of killing AD, though. So. No, it doesn't go in my model of killing AD, but no one, is, <laughs> no one has jumped on the bandwagon of killing AD yet, which you know, someday, someday they'll get there. They're just not there yet. Well, the next announcement, I didn't really know why you wanted this, um, you know, but Rafa D3 has launched a new feature called Rafa D3 Resolver Query Logs, which lets you log all the DNS queries made by resources within your VPC. Uh, customers use these query logs to be compliant with regulators, apparently, because that's a regulation that makes no sense to me. Uh, others wish to monitor DNS query behavior to identify anomalies, which is a security concern. I sort of get that. And then others simply just want to troubleshoot distributed applications, which, you know, that is a pain, and I kind of see that one a little bit. Uh, you can take those DNS query logs, and you can send them directly to CloudWatch Logs. You can send them to S3, or you send them to Kinesis Data Firehose. But, you know, the person who we should ask about why they wanted this feature is Jonathan Baker, because apparently this is a feature request that he made, I don't know how many years ago, to AWS that he wanted this ability. So, Jonathan, why do you think this is important? Oh, but he's talking on mute. <laughs> Perfect. <laughs> and that's all I have to say. <laughs> Mostly for debugging, honestly. But I, I um, without the ability to do packet captures and um, decrypt SSL, because we didn't want to have to you know, force uh, trusted root certificates and things, it would have been a really easy way of finding out which zones, which domains, um, instances were hitting as far as web traffic goes. And so correlating DNS lookups with outbound traffic would make it pretty easy to uh, spot people making connections to places not supposed to. I mean, I guess that's a nice way to say, hey, it's the DNS is broken. I'm like, no, nope, I have a query log for you. <laughs> I can see I returned the proper value to you in the query. Um, I would sort of would like to see this maybe on, you know, not on all the time because it would be expensive, but i kind of like to see it on external Rapid D3 Resolver sometimes too. It, it's, had... it's there first. It already existed there. Oh, it did already exist there. Okay, yeah. Cool. Nice. So I could turn that on. I could see what DNS queries I'm returning back to, you know, certain users and if I'm routing properly by geo basis, which is nice. So that's good. Yeah, I, I use that right now to turn on some resources in AWS. I hit the DNS, triggers triggers a little job, powers up an instance, and then hits it again. 30 seconds later, log in. I guess you could do the same thing with your internal your internal query log too. Yep. So you cool. could do the same thing, yeah. Yeah. It's a very so rude Goldberg way of turning on a machine. Yeah, I, I <laughs> love it, but it's like... It sort of reminds me of amazing. SSH knocking, though. It's like SSH knock. I want to knock on this port and you're going to return back to me on a tunnel back to another port. Yeah. Yep. Same idea. Oh, good. Well, I'm glad to have this feature for you. Did you get a plaque or anything? I didn't. Commemorate didn't, the fact it, that your feature request got made into a product. There should be plaques. We should maybe create a web be. service that just, you know, says, I requested this feature and now I, I have a printout. Yeah, we should like, do that. Should be a picture of a skeleton with holding, you know. It <laughs> <laughs> must be it must be an ongoing problem with people who made feature requests that it, it takes eighteen months to two years to get any of these feature requests realized. By which time you've either found another solution or completely forgotten what the problem was in the first place. Yeah. So we recently got a, a printout of all of the feature requests we'd made because we were demanding it, and I was reading through it and I was like, yeah, I don't I don't remember why we asked for that. Yeah. <laughs> were we drinking? <laughs> 
And you know, you can kind of tell because it tells you the status of like not even under consideration. I'm like, yeah, because we don't understand why it's under consider why we even asked for it at this point. <laughs> <laughs> but some of the really abstract ones really get picked up on the teams reach out to you and like, we'd really like to talk to you about why you want this feature. And you think, why? <laughs> yeah. It is pretty funny. Yeah. Because I was angry. It was three in the morning and it didn't work. <laughs> there was a there was a GM we talked to not that long ago about a service that they want to potentially offer and you know, we walked them through our use case, and they're like, wow, you're really aligned to what we want to do. And I'm just like, yeah, because we've been thinking about this for three years when we asked yeah. for it three years ago. And now you guys are finally thinking about actually building. <laughs> <laughs> like, I already designed the service for you. I already know how all of your stuff works. Like, like this is how it should do it. And they're like, yeah, that's, actually, that's actually what we're kind of thinking about doing. I'm like, hmm, so weird. Yeah. <laughs> it's just, uh, oh, it's almost so like we met with the product team every year to discuss when this was going to happen. <laughs> yeah, and we kept getting told, oh, it's on our roadmap. It's on our roadmap. And nothing ever happens. And you're like, okay, it's never going to happen. And then they finally reach out and like, hey, we want to talk to you about it. And we're like, what? Yeah. Uh, well, you know, for another feature that we sort of wanted when uh, CoreOS got bought, <laughs> <laughs> yeah. uh, Amazon is finally releasing the Bottle Rocket Linux distribution uh, as now generally available. Uh, this is a purpose-built uh, Linux distro to, build, to run containers. Uh, Bottle Rocket is designed to improve security and operations of your containerized infrastructure. Uh, it is built in se- with built-in security hardening, helps simplify security compliance, and its transactional updates mechanism enables the use of container orchestrators to automate OS updates and decrease operational costs. Uh, which is really kind of cool because it's really just a kernel, and if you actually want to admin the kernel, you actually have to attach a container to it. It's kind of neat. Mm-hmm. Um, it does use the device mapper's uh, Verity targets, uh, which is a Linux kernel to provide integrity checking to help prevent attackers from persisting threats to the disk uh, or the OS, as well as it supports the eBPF, which we talked about last week for Google as they announced support for that as well. Uh, Bottle Rocket is apparently written heavily in Rust, uh, and so if you are looking to contribute to this, you can do so if you know Rust and want to contribute to the open source roadmap. Uh, it is available as open source, and it, it does have a public roadmap available in this one as well. There you go. Bottle Rocket, what do you think? As a guy who just pivoted his internal uh, container platform to not this, um, I, I'm really sort of wishing the timing had worked out a little better. But, you know, we were a little bit too far in development um, when they announced the preview of this. And then I had already sold the security and compliance team on you know, the magical, wonderful new platform. And so completely pivoting away from that, I think, would have been detrimental to my health. So, well, I don't, uh, I don't know I would, how you would have gotten all their security tools running containers either. Exactly. Yeah. <laughs> I don't think they would have given that to me a second time like I did with CoreOS. But uh, yeah, so I mean, I, 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 I've installed this on my local on my local lab setup, and it's it's a really a joy to set up, and makes me you know feel like secure. Um, and I you know I just it's it's. It goes back to the original things, all the things that, you know, attracted me to CoreOS in the beginning. And and I just don't have the warm fuzzies on the, the Red Hat sort of offerings of those things. The community just isn't the same, doesn't have the same sort of support. So I, I'm, I'm hoping to get there with Bottle Rocket. I'm excited. It does kind of make me wonder what you do with Firecracker versus Bottle Rocket and when, when you should be using one or the other. Um, I mean, I get the idea of micro VMs and, you know, I guess that's more for Lambda functions, but... You know, everything's kind of turning into a container these days, so which way do you go? Well, yeah, I mean, I think that's, it's just layers, right, different layers. So Firecracker is more more of that, you know, isolation with the, the micro VM construct where you can now attach specific device drivers and have total isolation of user space versus this just being a straight OS, right? So you can run, you can run Bottle Rocket on a Firecracker, you know, 
uh, system. And so this is, you know, it's, it just depends on, you know, where you need the isolation, if you need to turn all the knobs to 11 um, for security purposes. Um, and, you know, it depends on your workload. If you're going to offer something multi-tenant bottle or, you know, uh, firecrackers is definitely needed. If you don't really have the multi-tenant, then you just want to make sure that you're running something that's resistant to attack, then bottle rockets where you need to be. Hey everyone, Jonathan here. I just wanted to take a minute to thank the cloud consulting gurus at Foghorn for helping make the cloud pod possible. These folks truly get it. Cloud consulting experts since 2008, they are premier tier partners with AWS, Google Cloud Platform Silver, and Microsoft Azure partners. From multi-cloud to containers to moving full production workloads to the cloud under the tightest compliance, Foghorn's team of full-stack cloud engineers have been there, done that, gotten the t-shirt, and are ready to share their experience with you. If you're in the market for some talent to supplement your team, visit www.fogops.io slash the cloud pod. www.fogops.io slash the cloud pod. Foghorn, the promise of cloud delivered. AWS has announced a feature that seems so boring, so benign on the surface that many will look overlook this. But you can now initiate internet key exchange negotiations for your VPN connections from AWS. Uh, this is available for new and existing site-to-site VPNs uh, and can be accessed through the AWS Manager Console, the CDK, or the Amazon Command Line. Now, as I mentioned, this seems like a really boring announcement, but I will tell you what this enables, and I think you'll be excited just as I am. Uh, so if you're a service provider who provides VPN connectivity to your service, uh, the only way for you to actually validate that the tunnel is up is to have a coordinated call with a customer, which is awful. So now you don't have to have a call with a customer on the other end of the line saying, hey, we've set up the VPN tunnel. Would you please send traffic to it so we can actually validate that it works and do a two-way handshake phone call uh, to set up your VPN tunnels, which is super nice. That's the first one. Uh, the second one is that this allows you to connect to other cloud providers. Because you know what? Who does, also does not allow inbound-based initiated Ike exchanges? Azure. So if you wanted to have your Azure cloud and your Google cloud and your AWS cloud all VPNed up together, you couldn't do it. So if you wanted to use you know, Power BI tools on, on Azure from your AWS system, it was not possible. Now it is with this capability, which is means that multi-cloud may be something that Amazon won't start keep swearing off as the enemy of the people. And then uh, the other side of it is if your VPN goes down, Amazon can actually try to reestablish your connection, which happens sometimes because Junipers and Cisco firewalls and those are kind of dumb, and they get stuck. And if they someone had tried to knock the door on the Amazon on the on the Juniper, it would have reestablished. But because no one asked them to, they just sat there waiting for nothing. And so now AWS can do it for you, which is great. And so I am super happy with this one. Uh, I think it might open the door to some interesting use cases in the future. Mm. Yes, this has got to be one of the feature requests that, that goes about the farthest. Oh, for has sure. To be. I mean, I wonder. Like, there's either we've bored our entire audience, except for like the. Th- three other guys besides us who have, you know, set up the Rube Goldberg of uh, EC2 open swan server to connect to my Amazon VPN doing a thing, like in order to connect things. But Or, or this is going to be amazing for everyone. They just don't know. I, I haven't decided which, but I know that because I have done all that horrible Rube Goldberg nonsense, I am super excited about this. Yeah, that's bringing back some scary memories. <laughs> <laughs> and you try and do it multi-AZ and you realize that the return traffic doesn't come back the same path and the statefulness <laughs> just drops everything. It's a complete nightmare. Yep. I'll just scale this box vertically. We'll be okay. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> uh, well, the other feature that someone's asking for uh, is the ability to send two, up to two gigabits of payload in an SNS message. 
Uh, and this is now available to you as SNS has now launched an open source extended client library for Java that enables you to publish and deliver messages that appeals up to two gigabytes. Previously, you could only send 256 KB. Uh, now you can do much more than that. With the extended client library, you can store the message payloads larger than 256 terabytes in an S3 bucket and use SNS to publish and deliver a reference to the payload location. Large payloads are billed as one SNS request and one S3 request with billing for the payload based on the amount of data stored in S3. Uh, both SNS and SQS uh, support this extended client library, which rely on the AWS payload offloading library to store and retrieve message payloads to S3. So this is now built in for you. As uh, Ryan pointed out to me earlier, this is something people always already did before. Yeah, so technically when I asked for this feature request, I wanted five gigabytes. But, uh, <laughs> no, I'm just kidding. Uh, <laughs> uh, yeah, no, I mean, this is, you know, this, if you had, if you exceeded the, the message size, you, you know, the, the tried and true practice has always been just, you know, pointer to S3. So you store whatever you want and just pull it out with some other things. So this is just an optimization of a process that people are already doing. And I think that, Great, they've they've made it uh, easier. I don't have to do like it's some extra dancing if I've got if I can fit within that two gigabits. Great. Hmm. I wonder how transparent it is. You have to like set up the bucket in advance and and sort of tell it where to go and put the objects, or can you just use the library and it goes and does that stuff dynamically? Because I would like to have seen it be a much more transparent implementation. Yeah, I'm hoping that it's completely transparent, like the cloud formation, you know, sort of it creates that bucket for you and mm. puts your template in that bucket automatically. So you're, you're right. If it's not that transparent, then yeah, throw it away. I don't want, I don't care. Like, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I have to create all that stuff anyway. Nah. So yeah. I, I do think you had to set the bucket name, uh, at least looking at the code here really quickly as you guys were talking about it. It does say specify your bucket name for the extended clients. Um, and then you can give it a topic name and a queue name and all those different things in a region you want it to be in. So it sounds like after you specify those things, uh, you can it'll take care of it from there. And then you've got to give SNS permission to write to the bucket. And, uh, yeah, yeah, of course. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, it is just a Java construct, so I mean, it's not yeah. it's not magic. <laughs> so, I assume this will come to other languages we'll talk about here on the show and lighting around in the future, like Golang and Python and others, because I can see them getting the same same capability that Java has it for both SNS and SQS. The next one up is uh, Amazon CloudWatch Logs are now available to you inside a, the Amazon Toolkit for Visual Studio Code. Uh, this allows you to interact directly with Cloud lo CloudWatch Log Groups in the AWS region that are available to the active credential profile. After listing and filtering the CloudWatch Log Streams for selected log group, they can view a stream's most recent 10,000 lines or megabit of log data with the option of loading older data or a newer event that occurred after the initial loading, as well as you can copy the log directly to your local disk so you can save it. Uh, so I actually think this is really cool. I, <laughs> I could definitely see the advantage of not having to go to the console and, again, be where your developers are, which is in Visual Studio Code or your ops people like myself. Uh, we live in Visual Studio Code all the time, and I'd love to be able to see a log right there when I need it. Yeah, it's cool. I think it's, it's, something, a lot that, uh, it's something that a lot of people have already written to, to tailor CloudWatch log locally while they're doing mm -hmm. testing. So having it built into VS Code is awesome. Yeah. I always just wonder where the madness stops, but you know, like at what point am I just replacing the browser with my IDE? But uh, you know, like I, I do think that you know, context switching has a real cost. This is one way, one more way to avoid that. I mean, technically, you could do that today because you can run links in a command line, which then you could have a command line embedded in your IDE. You could just links the web. You, know, you could do it today. I'm sure you could do it with Emacs. <laughs> 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 Knock yourself out, Jonathan. Knock yourself out. I will, I'll, let me know how that Look goes. Forward okay? to a future Jonathan does a thing. <laughs> <laughs> and then tell me how all the JavaScript in the world doesn't work and how nothing renders properly yeah. in a text window. Because uh, yeah. the days of keep being the, able to really the use the Slack room up to date with your swearing. 
Yeah. <laughs> uh, well, uh, if you were ever curious about guard duty and how guard duty compared to network intrusion detection systems, uh, AWS has it at your back because they have now paid for Genix uh, to compare AWS guard duty with network intrusion detection systems available on the market. Uh, for Genix, uh, for you guys who don't know, is a PCI uh, auditor company. They come in and do PCI audits uh, for companies who are spending lots of money on credit card processing fees and all those kind of great things. Uh, so Guard Duty, of course, is a cloud-centric IDS service that uses AWS data sources to detect a broad range of threat behaviors. And a traditional IDS relies on monitoring network traffic at specific network traffic control points like firewalls and host network interfaces. Uh, that allows the IDS to use a set of pre-configured rules to examine incoming data packet information and identify patterns that closely align with network attack types. That are known, by the way, that are known. <laughs> IDS solutions have a couple of problems in the cloud. The first one is that networks are virtualized because they're all VPCs. Uh, and then data traffic control points are very difficult to use, which is why they're giving you things like full packet copying, uh, which is a whole different challenge. Uh, this makes it difficult or impossible to monitor all network traffic for analysis because you can't tap it. Uh, and then as well as cloud apps are dynamic. They have features like auto-scaling and load balancing and cloud-native things uh, that change how a network environment is configured as demand fluctuates. Uh, AWS asked for Genix to conduct a test that compared guard duty to market-leading IDS to see if it was good or better. And for Genix, it determines that the guard duty is at least as effective at detecting network-level attacks as other market-leading IDS solutions. And because it has access to DNS requests, VPC full logs, and CloudTrail events, they believe it can identify threats that no other IDS can detect on the market today. So there you go. Ding, ding, ding. Finally, they realized why they needed that, that private DNS log. Yeah, that's yeah, exactly. Route 53. Yeah, exactly. I, I think I see this as the beginning of a sea change in security tooling and how we evidence intrusion detection. Uh, and I think that the new the new capabilities are going to be more holistic and, and view you know environments more holistically than we've typically done with you know viewing the network layer and only the network layer. So I, I look forward to this. I cannot wait to you know have this discussion with auditors because it's gonna yeah, I say that half tongue in cheek, but not quite. Uh, you know. <laughs> Because there is a certain tool set that, you know, security folks and, and auditors are more familiar with. And so, but, you know, driving change here is going to be fantastic. We need to become the new auditors. And then we can sell our own services to people who trust us to understand mm. what's going on. I don't know. I, I, well, I like <laughs> auditors. I don't know that I, 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 I want to go in and judge yeah. other people's architectures all the time unless I can fix it. And number two, I don't know that I have the patience to read all the controls and to justify and understand all these things. But I do think there's a point where you need to separate the auditing function from the technical knowledge function. And so I do see there's a need for, you know, kind of like a pre-sale solutions architect who understands technology to be with the auditors so that when, you know, a technical person is explaining how they're using all these controls to mitigate something, that you, someone can actually understand what they're saying. Because you can, you can buzzword uh, an auditor pretty quickly if you... You know, if you're the wrong auditor, no, hopefully they're a good auditor, and I've had good auditors too, um, are smart enough, and they will question stuff, and they'll ask you the right questions, and you can tell they get it or they don't get it. Um, and I always like those auditors better because their their feedback and their inputs are actually really valid and have you know valuable input to our processes, which I really like. Mm -hmm. Agreed. Well, and our final Amazon story is going to be a quick one for us because it's about IoT, <laughs> and other than my Google Home that decided to yell at me. Uh, my IoT experience is very limited, and this light bulb that I can turn on and off to my left uh, with my telling it to do so. Uh, but AWS is reducing the price of IoT events by at least 86%. Uh, IoT events are a fully managed service that makes it easy to detect and respond to changes indicated by IoT sensors and applications. Uh, for example, you can use an AWS IoT event to detect a malfunctioning machine or a stuck conveyor belt or maybe an escalator that's not working. 
maybe, or slow down in production output. Uh, and with AWS IoT events, you pay for each message evaluated to determine the state of your equipment or process. So those those messages that you're sending to evaluate that state are now 86% cheaper to process. But that, nice. that light bulb you have right there, is that the one that changes color depending on the severity of the uh, alerts that come in? It might. Mm. <laughs> <laughs> Let's have one. It's one red. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I'm going to make one of those war games, uh, DEFCON, one, two, three, four, five, science to put in the office when we go back. Yeah, no, that's great. We totally. Yeah, I have on my, I have my list of projects to do one day is to get a Raspberry Pi and then get a, a map of the Bay Area. And then I'll basically have light diodes that'll basically light up depending on where I'm at. And if I'm, you know, kind of like the, the Harry Potter, where are they at danger clock? <laughs> oh, nice. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, yeah. I'm going to build something kind of like that. I think it'd be fun. The Marauder's Map, right? Yeah. And the Marauder's Map is the one they have in the, in the castle, but the, this is the one oh. that's in. Uh, the Weasley's home. It's a clock, and it basically, if, if one of the Weasleys is in danger, it, it tells her that, and so she knows. Or if they're on their way back from the office, all kinds of, it's kind of cool. Anyways, yeah, I like it. Yeah. I know, but Justin's been doing well. He's been stuck at home. Yeah. Uh, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Actually, I have a comment on that later. <laughs> well, uh, so we've reached the week of GCP Next that I dreaded the most because it is the MLAI week. Which means that it is full of buzzwords that I don't understand. <laughs> I don't pretend I understand. And I have a slew of announcements that we're going to go through that I don't know that any of us can really do proper justice to. So I apologize to all of our MLAI practitioners who listen to our show. Uh, you already knew that we're not the best at this because you probably laugh at us all the time. But we're going to do our best to get through these stories. And I'm sure if you, this matters to you, you'll care. And so for those people out there, uh, I hope you enjoy. So the first one up is... Uh, Google is making TabNet available as a built-in algorithm on Google Cloud AI platform, creating an integrated tool chain that makes it easier to run training jobs on your data without writing any code. Uh, TabNet combines the best of two worlds. It's explainable, or similar to a tree-based model, while benefiting from high performance, similar to a deep neural network. This makes it great for retailers, finance, and insurance industry applications, such as predicting credit scores, fraud detection, and forecasting. TabNet uses a machine learning technique called sequential attention to select which model features to reason from at each step in the model. Uh, in summary, Google Tablet is a built-in algorithm that makes it easy to build machine learning models. There you go. That's all I got for you. Yeah. It's really funny because it's I, I did all of these articles. I struggled to read through it, and it just it really just highlights how how deep and immersive these fields are getting. You know, they're they're basically technologies upon themselves. Just how they build these models and their algorithms that they use. It's crazy, and I am quickly getting out of my league. And even being able to like speak the same language as some of these data scientists. It's embarrassing. Well, you're not a data scientist and nor am I and nor's just in them. It's 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 a whole field of study in its in itself, so I don't feel too bad about it. As long as I know how to call the APIs if if I need to, that's yeah. that's that's about my about my limit. <laughs> I mean I mean I, I I don't expect you to know how a heart works, Ryan, because you're not a cardiologist. I mean like MLAI yeah. is it's its own thing. <laughs> in my opinion, it's, it's awesome thing, and uh, and there are things that you can pick up as a system admin, or system engineer, kind of going into that space. But I think if you, you know, really hardcore data science stuff is always going to be over us because we haven't gone to training for it, we haven't gone to school, we don't have the right experience with it yet. But you know, if it's something you're interested and passionate about, I'm sure there's training available. Yeah, I'm, I'm pretty sure that the, the cloud providers know that people don't have the expertise to know how to choose the best solutions, which is why we have mm -hmm. things like SageMaker and and, and uh, whatever Google's offering is, which basically does the same thing. I believe it's called the Google Cloud AI platform. Ah, just, just rolls off the tongue there. <laughs> yeah. yeah, just rolls right off. Can't yeah. believe you didn't that didn't uh, stick in your memory. 
Yeah. So this one I this one I know a little bit about, <laughs> and this is because it's around data, uh, data analytics, particularly around ETLs and ELT pipelines uh, to derive meaningful insights from data. Uh, data engineers and ETL developers are often required to build dozens of interdependent pipelines as part of their data platforms, but orchestrating, managing, and monitoring all these pipelines can be quite challenging. And so Google is giving you the ability to orchestrate and manage your data fusion pipelines in Cloud Composer using a rich set of cloud data fusion operators. So someone out there is super excited about this. Cool. <laughs> and having done complicated ETLs and batch job coordination, it is a pain. So it's nice to have a tool. I can see this value this one. And then I was able to slip in a, a non-big uh, data ML story here for you guys. With MySQL 8, uh, it's ready for enterprise with Cloud SQL. Uh, they've expanded the Cloud SQL fully managed database service to now include MySQL 8. This joins MySQL pre-8, uh, SQL Server, Oracle, etc. Uh, and MySQL 8, of course, brings the more many powerful features such as instant DDL statements, atomic DDL, privilege collection using roles, Windows functions, and extended JSON syntax to help you be more productive. Uh, MySQL 8 supports HA, allowing you to ensure database workloads are automatically default tolerant in the event of an instance-level problem or even a zone outage on top of Google, uh, which is kind of nice, actually, from a, you know, it's multi-regional where uh, across multiple regions if you want it to be, which is kind of nice. Yeah, but the ability to roll back changes at the data layer is, is really important as you go into multi-master clusters and things like that because you realize that you've, you've, you've made a, a column change on one table somewhere and then there's a failure. There's never been a rollback strategy for that, so this is actually really, really important improvement I, I learned the hard way <laughs> from, from Postgres trying to do multi-master with Postgres it's just you had to have a whole mm -hmm. separate process for, for upgrading the the, um, the schemas everywhere and then one last uh, thing so ML Ops which is the closest that Ryan or Jonathan and I probably get to data science uh, of course a big thing and so simplifying machine learning ops is a big deal for data scientists and ML engineers so that your business can realize the value of AI uh, this article from Google uh, highlights existing features such as the AI platform pipelines for building and managing pipelines and the ability to use TensorFlow extended pre-built components and templates, uh, as well as it talks about a net new service called ML Metadata Management uh, for the AI platform. The service lets AI teams track all the important artifacts and experiments they run, providing a curated ledger of actions and detailed model lineage. This enables customers to determine model prevalence for any model trained on AI platform for debugging, audit, and collaboration. And by the end of the year, they will launch the feature store, which is an a in for the AI platform, which will allow you to uh, publish models and purchase or leverage open source models to help boost your productivity and reuse. Uh, so that's stuff I can understand. Yeah. yeah, and this is a huge advantage because this is a big challenge in our day job as well. Like, how do we... I'm sure we can, you know, we can write our algorithms and we can make our models and we can we can test it using data sets but then how do we actually get that into the product it's it's not exactly easy or cut and dry and there's multiple ways to do it and then how do you you know providing that environment for data science to work in this is also you know an enabler towards that as well this is great i also think being able to prove that a model does what it is supposed to do and is mm -hmm. without bias is also really important going forward yeah yeah, especially with what we're learning now with, you know, inherent bias and, and current algorithms, you know, for race and gender, like, you know, being able to, to move into where you can demonstrate that programmatically, fantastic. There was an article I didn't, we didn't talk about here on the show, but uh, I saw it's out there about, you know, responsible AI from Google's perspective, and they have a bunch of stuff about that. Uh, no features, so that's why I didn't cover it here on the show, but a lot of really interesting content, uh, particularly around that, the biases and how they're trying to model that out. Um, so definitely, if you're interested in that space, uh, Google has a lot of people who are very passionate about it, which is great. And so they're very focused on trying to make responsible AI a thing. So definitely check that out if that's something of interest to you. That's it. We got we made it through ML and AI. 
Cool. <sighs> <laughs> and then we uh, then we move on to Azure. <laughs> so it's a different level of uh, different level here. First one is, of course, after AWS and Google have announced their amazing package managers for artifacts, uh, Azure, who's always had one and said, hey, 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 you guys are copying me, has realized that they both had a feature that they don't, which is the ability to support upstream sources for universal packages. And so Azure rushed to the market and bought that at Kibbele as well. And now they support upstream sources for universal packages available with the latest release of Azure Artifacts. Uh, this allows you to configure Azure Artifacts to feed automatically download universal packages from upstream sources on demand. So there you go. That's an us two announcement if I've ever seen one. <laughs> it's a weird us too though because like we we already had the artifact manager but it wasn't didn't okay. didn't have that capability suddenly so it's like it one feature, feature parity yeah yeah exactly it's like all of a sudden they beat us and we had to beat we had to get back into parity <laughs> so what does this replace is this kind of like the, the red hat satellite kind of thing where you can this is the artifact replacement download the stage artifacts from somewhere else not satellite satellite's more of like you know how do you manage updates on a system right it's like a, a central coordinator for yum uh, this is more, yeah, Artifactory or Nexus Lexus, not Lexus, Nexus, um, sorry, wife's a lawyer. Nexus? Uh, <laughs> Nexus either. Yeah, Nexus Lexus, a law, law tool. Uh, <laughs> so this is just, you know, a repository. Artifactory, Nexus, all that kind of stuff. Uh, so the other thing that Azure's done, of course, is their monthly uh, cost management and billing updates. Uh, they have lots of new features for you if you're worried about your Azure spend, including the ability to schedule your exports of your usage data, uh, hopefully to a machine learning model or something else, not a person because uh, I don't want those in my email box. Uh, more <laughs> details for reservation recommendations of why they're recommending it, some quick fix recommendations, and several changes to the data in the Azure usage data exports, including bandwidth changes we previously talked about here on the show. So all those changes have now gone live, and your billing reports are broken. That is why. So fix those. <laughs> yeah, it's, it's painful, right, billing? It's just, it's just very painful. But, you know, I love seeing it built into these services to help keep control of costs. Yep, for sure. Well, uh, this next announcement I was sort of intrigued by, but also kind of like, okay. <laughs> so this is the uh, ability for Azure to make it easier for you to create child zones, which are easily attached to parent zones in their DNS solution. Uh, apparently this is a direct ask from customers. And prior to this change, when a customer was creating a new child zone, they would add their resource records to the newly created zone, but often miss the step of adding the complicated name server records back to the parent zone causing name resolution failure when the customer would try to actually test the newly created zone. So to fix that, they've updated their wizard to basically do that for you, which is really nice uh, if you're using this capability. It doesn't help you in infrastructure's code, so still do it the, the right way there. Uh, but if you are using parent-child domains and delegations, this is a great feature for you. I mean, it's only complicated if you don't know how it works, right? <laughs> it's DNS. Does anyone know how it works anymore? Like, oh. I, if I recall, <laughs> Ryan, this is one of the first scripts that, w that we wrote together. Yes, about, th about three or four years ago. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, we still use it, actually. Yeah. EM Delegate Zone. <laughs> like, that is, that, is, uh, that is still in use today. Yeah, and it's only because it was nightmarish trying to organize this in the early days of our cloud, cloud, our cloud platform, where it was like, why does the DNS work? Oh, we forgot the name server records again. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> or, or just people creating zones thinking they would just magically work. And, and that, yeah. that, would, that would be the next goal, I guess, would be to yeah. find people who added zones and then, then sort of retroactively fix the name server records but yeah that's actually cool. that's a good idea for our platform mm -hmm. i might i might write that one down yeah <laughs> <laughs> uh, so and ryan when we walked through the show notes earlier was saying well you know amazon doesn't do this and i said are you sure because that new wizard that new gui might do it you don't know it could be buried in there somewhere but <laughs> it could be buried I, i'd have to go back 
<laughs> yeah, I keep I just keep switching back to the old console, so I can't I can't. If if it back. was, it almost certainly wouldn't be across a camp. Right, and that's yeah, really it would not be across a camp. And so that's yeah. Azure has that concept, you know, built in. They don't have the same account structure, so it might be a little easier in that platform. No jealousy or, or anything there at all. <laughs> well, hey, we're, we're three years ahead of the, the next cloud provider for re-implementing the tool we wrote, so cool. <laughs> <laughs> it's how I, it's nice. how I measure my success in life. <laughs> I, I do like the way you look at it. I do like that. Yeah. And then the last uh, article from Azure, maybe a chuckle, so I included it, which was five ways to optimize your backup costs with Azure Backup. You know, because everyone needs five ways. Uh, saving money is, of course, important than ever, and backups might be a prime place to check, especially if you've misconfigured your policies. So the first one is uh, to clean up the backups for your deleted resources. Now, on the surface, that sounds fine unless you took the backup so you could delete the instance. <laughs> so if you do need potentially need the data, don't just go delete all your unattached you know, resource <laughs> backups because you might actually need those in the future. So be careful with that one. Uh, <laughs> the next one, of course, is... Uh, Optimize your backup policies. Uh, maybe a single snapshot hourly is better than one every minute, for example. Um, or what they really want you to do here is don't use their full backup and use their differential backup because it's much easier to run a differential than it is run a full, uh, and you can save some time and some energy there, as long as you don't mind you know, applying multiple differentials and fulls when you need to restore the data. So do keep that in mind. Uh, optimize your retention with shorter retention durations for your backups, as long as you still meet your compliance requirements and that you don't actually need the backup from three weeks ago. So you know, don't delete the backup you might actually need. Take advantage of select disk backups, which means you know, back up the data you actually care about, not the Windows directory. That's how I see that one. Mm-hmm. It's an important one. And then determine the appropriate required storage redundancy uh, for your backup. So in the Azure world, you create a storage account, which you can make multi-region aware, globally replicated, or locally redundant. And so you know, potentially, do you need your backups to be globally redundant? That's the question you should be asking yourself. Uh, or is locally redundant enough, or is just just too much redundancy in redundant worlds altogether? So, again, this is available to you to save some money on Azure backups. There you go. Reminds me of episode 75. The cloud pod deletes everything but keeps copies. (laughs) Yeah, exactly. (laughs) And that's the reason why I said don't delete the copies if you actually need the data. Yeah. Yeah, they really should have some protections in here, like do not delete before, you know, make make it uh, sort of right once. I kind of like the time deletion, like you, you signal a delete and then it, it gives you 48 hours before it actually deletes it or whatever. I like those. Mm. So, you, you know, at least it's a, you can, you can fire, you know, you can fire off the automation to clean up and then sort of dead man switch it if you desperately need that. You're like, oh God, but you know, it's, there's no perfect pill in this, in this case, I don't think. All right. Well, Peter gave us enough notice that I was able to give us weekend update lightning round. <laughs> so he... Let us know he was going to be uh, blocked. So I have written out jokes, once again, that will either hit or miss terribly, and I apologize for all the bad ones in advance. Prepare for laughter uh, in three, two, one. <laughs> <laughs> uh, all right. So I, I think the order today is Justin, Ryan, Jonathan, and we will see how this goes. It's been a while since we've done a weekend update lighting around. I don't, and I don't know yeah. if Ryan's ever done one, actually, so this would be. I've done exactly one, or maybe two. So, yeah, I'm definitely the, the noob here. It was about the time that we were doing, we were experimenting with this format when we, you joined us full-time. So mm-hmm. it's possible you did do yeah. a couple, but I just yeah. don't remember. Because that was, you know, 100 years ago in COVID It time. was in, in so. 2020 time. All right, let's do this. Azure has released the ability to run analytics against REST APIs, asking the question, how do I get logs for my logs? In proof that it is not the cloud for me, Azure has released the ability for me to create a table with one click. Infrastructure code or death. 
The Amazon Coretto team has released 15 as release candidate. They too have had too much coffee and just jittered right by Coretto 12, 13, and 14. Yeah, where did this go? Like Java, it was Java 7, and then Java, or Java 6, Java 7, Java 8, but I don't remember any Java before that. And then all of a sudden it was 11, and now it's 15? I don't, I don't get that. It's like Highlander 2. You know, we don't talk about Highlander 2. <laughs> <laughs> exactly. What happened to those yeah. Java versions? <laughs> Amazon RDS for SQL Server uh, now supports Traceflag 692, a close cousin of Experiment 626, a.k.a. Stitch. And yes, I have been stuck in my home with too much Disney Plus since March. <laughs> Amazon RDS for SQL Server now supports SQL Server 2019. AWS continues to show their support for third-party products such as Kubernetes, SQL Server, and Kafka. The kind of support where you curse Amazon, you build it all in Terraform, launch it into production, stabilize it, and then have Amazon announce this. And now everyone will question why you built this instead of just using RDS. Thanks, Amazon. Story of our lives. Mm -hmm. You can now use Amazon Textract with private links. Of course, nothing is private unless you told Amazon not to use your data to train their own models. <laughs> Zing! Mm-hmm. Yeah. AWS Systems Manager now supports all current versions of Ubuntu. Of course, if you are a huge fan of Gen 2, you can get Bentu. <laughs> nice. <laughs> <laughs> I love it. CloudFront announces real-time logs. So now I can see in real time that my CloudFront updates are taking an eternity. Come on. Is it done yet? Without having to wait 10 minutes first. That's nice. <laughs> <laughs> Well, we have a couple things coming up that we want to share with our listeners. Of course, the first one is the Rust conference is coming up on September 15th. Uh, if we, we tickled your fancies with that talk about Bottle Rocket supporting Rust uh, as its way to do things, maybe this is for you. This is a free conference putting on, put on by our partners at Manning. We are sponsoring the Rust conference uh, as well as the next conference as well uh, as our podcast sponsors for the show. So we were mentioning it here. Uh, there are some uh, links to go sign up for it to give us credit that you heard about it here on the show. And so do follow those if you're interested in the Rust Conference on September 15th. Or if that one doesn't work for you, we have the Women in Tech Conference coming up on October 13th, which we are also sponsoring here at the Cloud Pod. Uh, so we are super excited for both of these conferences. Of course, Women in Tech is a big movement uh, trying to get more, more women into the technical world. And so we can have them provide value to all the amazing cloud technologies that we're building. So we do support women in tech a big way here at the show, and we do encourage you to join the conference, even if you're a man. That's a key thing, because I think a lot of times men see women in tech and go, that's not for me. Uh, if you're supporting the movement, you're supporting you know, getting more people into coding and, and women in code, uh, this is definitely a way to do that and support that process. And here, you know, all the great ways that people are trying to do this and how you can help contribute to the community. So even if you are a male uh, or non-gender or whatever, uh, you can go to Women in Tech uh, and join that as well on October 13th. So do sign up for those. Follow the links uh, in our show notes uh, so we can get credit that we sent you there. Uh, but we are sponsoring and we are super excited about it. Yeah, I'm looking forward to the press conference. It's something I've been wanting to kind of get into, but it's so difficult just to learn something in an abstract way. But some of the speakers they have uh, on on the fifteenth are going to talk you through some sort of real world scenarios and how how you can use Rust to help with game development. How you can use how Rust helps you with uh, sort of thread safety and memory safety. And, and I think Rust is probably going to be the, the future of a C. We shall see. Mark my words. We will definitely see. <laughs> uh, also, these are both free. I didn't mention that part. Uh, but both conferences are free to attend uh, and are being streamed on Twitch, which makes it super easy to use. Well, that's it here in This Week in Cloud. Anything else you guys want to share with, uh, with our audience? I need to get out of this house, but other than that, no. You know, it's September. I don't know if you guys know that or not, but uh, <laughs> yeah, it's now September, and we're continuing to be stuck at home uh, in, 
a big way, which is a, a bit of a bummer. But hopefully soon, uh, soon enough we'll be able to get out uh, of our houses and back into the real world and see each other and you know go to a conference maybe someday. That'd be nice. Mm-hmm. All right, guys. Well, we'll see you next week here at the Clap Pod. Good night. See you. Bye, everybody. And that is The Week in Cloud. We'd like to thank our sponsor, Foghorn Consulting. Subscribe on iTunes or wherever you get your podcasts and tweet us your feedback at hashtag thecloudpod. Or join our Slack channel. Go to our website, thecloudpod.net, for sign-up instructions. Mm-hmm.